Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books and Gender Studies. I am the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. Today, my conversation is with Matthew Gutman, Professor of Anthropology at Brown University. His book, Are Men Animals? How Modern Masculinity Sells Men Short, published by Basic Books, is our topic. Gutman examines how cultural expectations that views men as violent and sex-driven becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Dubious interpretations of the scientific study of the effects of testosterone, comparisons to the animal kingdom, and the persistence of sex segregation reinforces ideas about what is natural. The idea that masculinity is the result of biology allows the boys-will-be-boys excuse and reinforces patriarchal values harmful to women and setting false limits for male behavior. Presenting a cross-cultural survey, Gubin demonstrates how the variation across culture from Mexico to China contradicts notions of a fixed masculinity. Seeing masculinity as a product of culture and malleable allows us to reimagine fathering, who is capable of leadership, and offers new possibilities for how men and women will relate to each other. Here is my conversation with Matthew Gutman. Now let me introduce you to the author, Matthew Gutman. Matthew, hello. Hi, how are you? Welcome to the show, and thank you for sharing your thoughts with our audience. But before we get started on the book, which is a very interesting book, uh, tell us about yourself and your background, and how you came, became interested in masculinity. Ah, well, I'm an anthropologist. I teach at Brown University. And uh, in terms of background, I think maybe the only uh, not-so-normal trajectory was that after college, I did community organizing for about 15 years. So I returned to grad school very late, and I had a family and all that, and I had to quickly decide what I was going to focus on and where. And uh, two things influenced me to spend the next 30 years studying men and masculinities. One, uh, I was asked uh, by a close friend, why is it always women who study gender? And I thought that was a really good question. Um, And two, uh, I'd taken a photograph of a man in Mexico City holding a baby and then showed the photograph to various friends, particularly in the U.S. And there was an uncommonly uh, uh, common response, which was impossible. Uh, Mexican men are machos. Machos don't take care of babies. Uh, Machos tell women to do that. Uh, and all. And I said, well, I don't know, but I took the photograph in Mexico City, and it, uh, as far as I know, the guy's Mexican. And so I spent the next four years trying to figure out what men do and don't do with uh, children of various ages. Um, and I came to the conclusion that there are, uh, there's, you know, machismo is rampant in Mexico, but the fact is it's rampant in the United States, Russia, uh, and pretty much every other part of the world. But not all men 
uh, are, you know, macho sexist pigs and uh, trying to tease all this out and understand what we know and what we think we know um, has been uh, sort of my life's mission. Well, you know, uh, one of the things you talk about in your book, it seems like masculinity today is in crisis. But as a historian, it seems like, and I've studied gender, it seems like men are always in crisis. And it always kind of parallels where women are, what women are doing, that uh, that sort of sends men into some sort of crisis. What is different about the situation today? Yeah, I don't think men are in crisis per se. I do think that men are uh, in, as never before, reacting to the fact that women uh, are are in power and coming into positions of power uh, as never before in history. If you go back 100 years, um, how many women were in the Senate? Now, there's only, I think, 26 women now. So that's nowhere near 50-50. But 100 years ago, there, was no, there were no women political leaders in the world except for a few queens. Um, and if you ask people, they would have said, well, look, at, if women could be leaders, don't you think somewhere in the world you'd find some women? Uh, there aren't any women, therefore it's natural. Men lead, women follow. Um, today, uh, that is not just an abhorrent idea, um, but it's demonstrably stupid uh, idea. And so I think that with women coming into positions of power, leadership, and all that, uh, this has been a challenge for many men to deal with. Whether it's a crisis, uh, I'm not sure that's the best way around it, but it's certainly provoking a lot of discussion, debate, um, and a renegotiation, I think, about what it means to be a man or what it means to be a woman, and whether those terms are even the, the most sensible. Um, we don't tend to fight about, you know, left-handed people do this and right-handed people do that. You know, left-handed people make better leaders. Nobody would say that. Uh, why do we say that about gender? So how, how we're hearing the term toxic masculinity. Mm. And I know you don't have that in your book, I don't believe, but the idea of toxic, what, what is your, uh, how would you define that problem? I think that that is a problem. Maybe it's not a problem. Is it a made up problem? <laughs> no, I don't think, I, I think I use it a couple times. I generally, uh, it's sort of a, a personal preference. I tend to shy away from labels um, that can get out of hand and be used as a substitute for, you know, deeper thinking. And so Today, I think toxic masculinity speaks to what was called sexism um, and sexist behavior uh, or machismo and macho behavior uh, in other periods of time. And I think it speaks to some real problems of inequality, of, uh, of oppression, uh, of women being you know, sexually assaulted. All the rest of this, I think, is there's definitely a gendered aspect to it and uh, there's a toxic aspect and men are most associated with that. Um, so I'm not opposed to the term per se. I just think it can get overused and become a substitute for more in-depth uh, analysis and description of what actually is going on on the ground. Um, are men who are toxic, are they always toxic or are they toxic in particular situations? Um, are men of color labeled as more toxic than white men, for instance. Um, that to me is a very dangerous road to go down. One of the wonderful things about Me Too uh, movement is that for the first time really in history, powerful white men have been targeted 
uh, in particular. Usually when men have been um, called to task for sexual assaults and things like that, it's been men of color, black and brown men. And it also seems like with the term toxic masculinity makes it seem like maleness itself is right. a problem. <laughs> and yeah. <laughs> Right. Right. So let's talk about how do our notions uh, that we've inherited, we've inherited, we've got a lot of cultural inheritance here. How does our notions of masculinity let men off the hook often? Well, the main argument of the book in terms of, of that is that if we talk about men's biology as somehow dictating the way they behave and think and act and all that, um, we let them off the hook because we don't make them responsible for their actions. I'll give you two examples. One is there are people um, who may go around using the expression about a woman she is so hormonal as though this can explain the behavior of a woman that she really can't control herself because she's having her period or it's right before her period or something like that. Um, but that has been challenged uh, really well. It's not, you know, we're not through that, but that has been challenged. And I think we need a similar challenge with regard to the language we use on men. And the second example. Uh, goes back to the Brett Kavanaugh hearings for the Supreme Court a year and a half ago. Um, and one time after another, during uh, the very fiery uh, discussions and debates, I would hear various pundits uh, on TV and then read uh, op-ed columns and whatnot, where people use the term testosterone to explain uh, Brett Kavanaugh's uh, assaults uh, as a teenager including from somebody as thoughtful on gender issues as Frank Bruni, um, who wrote in one of his columns, you know, the New York Times columnist, he wrote in one of his columns uh, that, uh, you know, this was a testosterone-fueled and alcohol-fueled uh, uh, teenager. Um, well, the fact is that other teenage boys uh, may drink. Other teenage boys uh, presumably have uh, equivalent levels of testosterone coursing through their veins, and they don't assault women. Um, and so by saying uh, that somehow testosterone was in any way, shape, or form responsible for the actions uh, of sexual assault, it lets men off the hook because it's almost like poor guys. They can't help themselves. They have to assault women because of their testosterone makes them do it. And it's, it's uh, biologically nonsense and politically incredibly dangerous, in my opinion. Well, you just brought up testosterone, which you spent a whole chapter talking about. Can you uh, talk a little bit about the science uh, behind it? Because people say, well, this sure. is scientific. We all know that this is just a fact, scientific fact. Can you <laughs> exactly. Explain, can you explain <laughs> the difference between uh, the things we found out about testosterone and our interpretations of what that's going to mean? Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's great. I mean, first of all, testosterone didn't exist before about 100 years ago. And obviously, it did exist as a substance, uh, but it didn't exist in terms of we had no name for it. Uh, hormones, endocrinology, all that is, is something in the last 100 years. So it has become a language that we use to describe various kinds of behavior. As I mentioned, uh, in terms of estrogen, um, 
we don't generally attribute women's behavior to estrogen, uh, but we do call them hormonal, um, or we have in the past. And it seems to me that all we're doing by invoking testosterone all the time is saying men are hormonal. It really doesn't help. The facts of testosterone are that if you take a man, for instance, there have been studies on the, uh, the relationship between testosterone levels and aggression. And the fact is, if you go down to 20% of normal levels or up to two times normal levels, and that, you know, that, that range would cover the vast majority of men in the world, uh, you're not going to find a correlation between aggression and testosterone. If you get much higher than two times, for instance, gym rats who take steroids, or uh, through castration, you will find a correlation. Um, but you won't for the vast middle range. And so if you tell me that somebody has a, some man has a high level of testosterone, you will not be able to predict whether that is an aggressive man. Similarly, if somebody acts in an aggressive fashion, you will not be able to tell what the level of testosterone is. They don't correlate like that except extreme levels one way or another. And that's the science of it. And all scientists are pretty much in agreement. There's some, there's some debate on it. I mean, there's, there's one neuroscientist from Britain who likes to say that Wall Street um, uh, is the epitome of testosterone. Um, and that this is the, you know, th these men must have higher levels. There's never been a study of Wall Street traders uh, and their testosterone levels. Uh, this is something on the side, maybe, but the idea that uh, culture and biology are sort of in conversation with each other, and that just biology alone doesn't do anything. It has to have a cultural context in which, uh, you know, things happen, other other influences. And so this biological explanation for, for certain, certain male behavior uh, sort of excuses culture and naturalizes it, basically says that culture is just natural. You know, this is exactly. the way... Yeah. And, and we know that cultures, there's cultural variations all over the world. So what can we learn about this uh, connection or lack of connection or conversation that's going on between biology and culture by looking at, uh, at other cultures besides Western cultures? And I think you do a lot of that in your work, in your book, and that's very interesting work. Well, so I, th I think you've touched on a key point. If... Um, male behavior and male attitudes and all that are biological. And if, I mean, unless somebody's going to say we're biologically completely different in one part of the world or one historical period from another, but putting aside that uh, argument, if we are basically biologically uh, the same species and, and, and there's more commonalities than not uh, across cultures, you would expect to find similar behavior. But if you take rape rates, for instance, um, you will find really different rates of rape, uh, not only from one cultural setting to another, uh, but even from the, the statewide uh, in the United States, from one state to another, they can vary tremendously. If you take Alaska, New Jersey, um, I'll bet you can't guess which has a much higher rape rate. I would think it would be Alaska. It's New Jersey. <laughs> now, now why, why that is, I'm not actually sure. Uh, but, you know, we have certain expectations. You know, Alaska's wild frontier, 
you know, more independent men uh, and, and New Jersey's more cultivated or whatever. The fact is worldwide, you find higher rates, not among, you know, small tribal societies or this or that, or people uh, who, who live in the forest uh, or, or something who, again, stereotypes might tell you are more violent, even though that that's completely fallacious. You find a correlation much more with what are the levels of political equality between men and women. So you find rape in every society on earth, but you find lower rates where there is actually more genuine equality in terms of economics, in terms of political, uh, political power and whatnot, which is one reason that people have pointed to the United States as having, relatively speaking, high rape rates um, because of, despite whatever uh, people might pretend, there is tremendous inequality between men and women in the United States, in particular compared to some other countries, including uh, in Europe, for instance. Um, so that that's what correlates, not the biology of men dictates that they must do X, Y, or Z. Uh, the fact is that worldwide, most uh, people who kill other people are men, uh, nine out of 10 in many parts of the world. But most men don't kill. Both factors are important. And so when you look at particular societies in which men and women share much more the decision-making of various kinds, the childcare of various kinds, um, the kinds of work uh, that they do, um, you find lower rates of rape. And so it, if they're biologically the same people, um, you have to come up with a cultural explanation as being much more important. But culture also changes biology. And talk about that some more. That's well, interesting. So if you look at a male and female adult brain, you will find some differences and you'll find commonalities among women and commonalities among men. If you look at small children's brains, you will find far fewer differences between men and women. Uh, men's, uh, boys' brains tend to be a little larger, and girls' brains tend to develop a couple years more quickly than boys. Um, and there are a lot of neuroscientists who have concluded that essentially your brain adapts to the culture. In other words, that you learn how to be a man, you learn how to be a woman in various cultures, and the brain therefore changes along those lines, that it is not something inherent in the evolutionary trajectory uh, uh, of, of adult male and female, um, but that in fact uh, the brains are incredibly malleable. Um, and so that the extent to which there are real differences and inequalities between men and women and divisions of labor and all sorts of other things will be reflected in how those brains develop. Now, we all grew up um, watching nature shows on television. Mm -hmm. And you always, you've got the narrator going, and the male and the female, the female's doing this, and the male is doing this. And, and of course, the, 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 t the lesson there, even if it wasn't explicit, was 
that we can extrapolate from the animal kingdom some notion about how men and women, human beings, are going to re- respond to each other or, or how they're going to behave. Can you talk yeah. about, the, about the animal kingdom and the danger of extrapolating from the animal kingdom assumptions about humanity? Well, I don't, I don't know about you. Um, I think there are more shows today than there were when I was a kid, but there were shows back then. Um, uh, Animal Kingdom was one. I don't, I'm not sure that's on TV anymore. But I remember we were fascinated uh, with watching what wild animals do or you know, different animals in different um, settings do. But the fact is that I also remember that when they said the male zebra this or that, or the male orangutan, this or that, my ears pricked up a little bit more because they were talking about males and I was a male. And so therefore, if the male orangutan did X, Y, or Z, that had an impact on me in thinking this is what males of at least the orangutans, but maybe humans do too. And I think it's very easy to fall into that kind of thinking Um, And there's a big split, frankly, among scientists who study non-human animals. Um, And there are some who see really quite direct parallels between, for instance, sexual selection of everything from the insect kingdom through uh, uh, rams butting horns with each other and peacocks strutting for the peahens and, you know, this and that, in which males compete for the female the female it gets choosy as to which male she will uh, let uh, you know uh, impregnate her, and this is a it's a mindset that then gets implanted onto humans. Um, and then a story closer to home, um, I have a friend uh, who teaches biology, who for a long time was using slides of rams and peacocks and insects and all that, and talking about fighting males and choosy females and ended um, the slideshow for, for uh, this biology class with a photograph of uh, football players and cheerleaders. The conclusion being that the boys are out there fighting each other to impress the females on the sidelines who are being cheerleaders and will, you know, after the game choose uh, which boys they think uh, played most, uh, you know, valiantly and fought the best, etc., and that essentially were the same um, cross species. Okay, what is the problem with that? It sounds so just common sense. Common, exactly. Well, I mean, that's just common one problem. Me. There are so many problems with this. <laughs> one, males of the human species are incredibly picky. Also, they do not actually want to have sex with any female. I defy you to find, you know, a a broad swath of men who actually want to have sex with every female they can. I don't know any man like that myself. I'm sure there are, there are predators. There are all sorts of horrible people out there, but that does not characterize men in any way, shape or form. It may characterize some other animal species. It does not characterize humans. One, two, the range of behavior among orangutans or zebras or anything else is real. Not all male zebras behave exactly the same. And you find troops of chimpanzees who have one kind of cultural trait and they pass it on. 
And if you go 100 miles away, you'll find another group of chimpanzees. They don't do that at all. And they, you know, there's differences. However, the range among chimps, orangutans, or what have you, is much more limited than among humans. And so among human males, you find a, an enormously different repertoire of activities, both today and historically. And so one of the things anthropologists do is we document, you know, whether this is people in southern Mexico known as the Mouche and the Isthmus of Tehuantepec in Oaxaca State in southern Mexico, who for centuries, if not millennia, uh, have had uh, members of their families who cross-dress, but particularly cross-work. In other words, they, these are people who are biologically born male, um, but they choose at some point, usually in childhood, to take on female tasks and duties and often dress as females. This is not a new phenomenon. This has been around for a while. And people have grown up with this. And this is part of the society in a more profound way than you will find in most other parts of Mexico, much less the rest of the world. And then you can look at various uh, rites of passage for boys in one part of the world or another that would be impossible to conceive of in another part of the world. You don't find that kind of tremendous variation among non-humans. And so what I would argue is that just as we didn't have any women leaders, political leaders in the world, a hundred years ago, and people would argue that's biology, Look at what's happening today. It's not biology, it's inequality. And people widely recognize that to be true. And so that thinking that men, if they act nurturing toward a child, are acting like women, that's a cultural attitude. That's not a, biolog a biological uh, approach to it. And so you find among other non-human species, much more rigidity as to whether the male's do or don't participate in childcare. In other words, if they don't, nobody does. And if they do, they do to a much greater extent. Um, among humans, you find a lot of men do, a lot of men don't, and everything in between. So basically what you're saying is human beings are much more culturally creative, and we're able to create all kinds of cultural ways of being and living, and that we can, it also can be changed. It's malleable. Yeah, it's, okay. it's better put than I, than, I, than I did it. Okay, the other thing I want to talk about is this whole idea, not only men more violent, we think of men being more violent, but we also think of men having a, a higher sex drive. Uh, or are men culturally, or, or is the question is, do men have a higher sex drive or are men culturally conditioned to experience and express their sexual drive differently? Well, again, um, I think it depends where you're talking about. If you go to southern Spain in Andalusia, um, historically, uh, there was a belief uh, that was fairly widespread that a man is born with a certain amount of semen. And once the semen is used up, he would die. And so if a man's wife uh, was demanding sex all the time, it was suspicious that she was trying to kill him. <laughs> now, that belief does not exist in most other parts of the world, to the best of my knowledge. Similarly, uh, among uh, groups in, in New Guinea, uh, young uh, boys as, as, as young as six or eight 
um, will perform fellatio on boys who are 12, 13, 14 in order to ingest the semen, in order to themselves grow into uh, young men. This kind of relationship of sex between boys, between males, does not continue into adulthood. So that, in other words, this is an activity among boys of various ages. Um, and then most, if not all, of these males then uh, marry women and have children with women and have sex with women exclusively uh, for the rest of their life. These are practices which are quite different, again, than uh, at least the ones I grew up with in the United States. Um, but it doesn't mean uh, that other new changes can't come along as well. I mean, I think one of the challenges today uh, of, uh, of a lot of the, the transgender politics, uh, it's provoking outrage, it's provoking inspiration for a lot of people because they're trying to figure out what is natural. What is normal? What, you know, all these different kinds of things. Um, and there's, there's tremendous uh, disagreement uh, about that. Now, you know, we've got uh, right now the rates of prescription for Viagra are quite high in the country. Mm -hmm. What does this tell us? And I can't believe that, you know, all these men who are taking this are all have some, you know, fundamental biological problem with, <laughs> with their bodies. What is this telling us, though, as a society about how men are relating to their sexuality or themselves as men because of these high prescriptions for Viagra? Well, I think, um, you know, part of it is uh, erectile dysfunction as a problem that develops more uh, with some men with age. Um, but you also, uh, according to the, the studies I've seen, you find a recreational use of Viagra um, that's fairly prevalent among uh, younger men as well. Um, I think that a lot of this is tied up with a narrow vision of what constitutes good sex uh, for a lot of people. Um, I don't think it's just men. I think it's also women. Um, in other words, whether a man can have an erection and how long he can maintain an erection, all that is important for a lot of men, but it's also important for a lot of women. And so I think that uh, some people are sort of exaggerating um, certain uh, ideas that have been out there and practices, and at the same time, others may be challenging some of that. Um, I find fascinating all the studies um, related to women and their own libido. Um, and whether this is something that is biological or uh, psychological. That's been some of the debate uh, around women, whereas with men, uh, it's almost uh, universally uh, discussed as a question of, of mechanics and plumbing alone. Um, right. And not and, that psychology yeah. is also involved in terms of being nervous, being you know, feeling awkward, all these kinds of things, that's not a very manly way to think. Right. It's harder for, it's harder, it's, it's easier for a man to say, well, something's not working in my plumbing rather than say, I'm really feeling anxious in this relationship. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And in terms of women, I think, you know, a lot of feminist uh, scholars and researchers saying, 
you know, this uh, low libido in women really is how we measure it, what we're measuring it against, and also the fact that women uh, are, are having or expressing their sexuality within constraints, cultural constraints that may just dampen yeah, uh, yeah. Their, their, their enjoyment. So, I, no, I think, I think that's a great point. I was just going to add another example. Um, years ago, uh, 25 years ago, I had a job talk that I was giving. And um, it was in an anthropology department where uh, science was extremely important um, and scientific method. And I remember at the all-important dinner that evening, uh, after the job talk, um, the chair of the committee said, look at Matt, you do uh, gender studies. Uh, and we obviously were anthropologists, we both agree you know, a lot of uh, gender issues relate to culture. Uh, but come on, let's face it. There's some biological differences that are just fundamental and can't be changed. And I asked for an example. And the example he gave me was visual stimulation. And uh, that men are visually stimulated sexually and women uh, much more than women. And I said, how do you know that? And he said, well, there are a million studies that prove this. And after all, who watches pornography? Um, oh. <laughs> and the key here is that the year was 1996, I believe. Uh, no, yeah, it was 96. And the internet didn't exist, uh, at least not in the way we know it now. And I argued that I didn't think that only men were visually stimulated. I thought it depended on the man and that some women were too. And he said, where are the studies? And I didn't have any to provide for him. And when he said, it's just guys watching porn, I didn't have an argument for that either. Um, because there was no internet porn at that point. Well, no, yeah. You, but a lo and behold, have, yeah. 20 years later, 10 years later, I don't remember exactly when, when people could watch porn in the privacy of their own homes and nobody would know whether they were watching it or not, lo and behold, according to every study today, there are a lot of women now watching it. That doesn't mean all women watch any more than all men watch porn. But the visual stimulation argument seemed so solid, and there was irrefutable scientific proof, and it was nonsense. But you couldn't prove it, you know, that it was cultural stigma, which was what was keeping women um, from watching porn. And men had less cultural baggage or cultural issues that they had to uh, confront if they were going to watch it. It was, uh, it was there were more positive connotations uh, for more men uh, than women. Well, women would have to go to a triple X shop, exactly, and uh, in public. Uh, that's a lot. That's was a lot tougher for a woman to do. You know, you know, out in public, a man could do exactly. it and get away with it. A woman did it. It was just you know she was asking for it or exactly. What? Whoever, whatever. So let me ask you, let's go on and talk about um, the expectations that we have of what a father is and uh, how that, how, and what is possible in fathering that we have not even really begun to explore fully. And how do we, how do women or mothers set up men to, call, you know, opt out of childcare? <laughs> Um, I think because I think that this is a you know it's a relational thing. I think masculinity yeah. and femininity are are working off each other. 
Yeah, I think you find cultural variation, you find historical variation. Um, but even take historical variation. When I had my first child, I was in the delivery room. And I distinctly remember my father saying, what the hell are you in the delivery room for? That's not where you belong. You go to find a bar. Um, and he wasn't trying to be funny. He actually, that's what he'd done. That's what his generation had done in the United States in a particular social group. Um, and it was unheard of in his day for men to be in the delivery room. So you find that historical change. But there's another kind of historical change which we often miss because I think we have sort of ingrained in our head that things move from sort of traditional to modern and modern is more progressive or more open or more liberal or whatever. If you go back in history in virtually any farming uh, culture in the world, which is virtually every country on earth uh, up until uh, the 20th century, the majority of people were farmers of one kind or another, and there are countries where that's still the case. Um, men, uh, oh, and you also have to go back before children uh, went to school um, as a rule. In other words, that there were some kids who went to school, but uh, poor farming kids did not by and large go to school or did not go very much. Um, fathers would take their kids to the fields when they went out in the, uh, uh, during the day. Um, they would take particularly their young sons, uh, but also their daughters. And they actually had more contact historically um, with their children of a very young age. And again, they tended them, they took care of them, they talked to them, they trained them. They, they raised their children in a very active 24-7 fashion that once people all of a sudden move to the cities and men start getting jobs as bus drivers and factory workers and this or that, they can't take their kids to work anymore. So that the notion that, you know, men participating in childcare is something new and it's a challenge to millennia of men saying, this is women's work, I want nothing to do with it, is historically inaccurate. So what do you think, what kind, where are we with the fathering today? What, where are we? And, and how is it, ch is it changing? Uh, are we stuck? <laughs> um, well, I don't know about your experience, but my experience um, in all sorts of ways is that it varies. There's a lot of variation from family to family. Uh, there's a lot of variation from one moment to another. But in most families that I know, there is ongoing discussion and sometimes argument over who does what with the kids. Um, and people are trying to work it out. Uh, but I don't think there's any doubt that in many parts of the United States, men are doing more today than they did 20 or 30 years ago. I would say that in some homes, there's much more of a division of labor where childcare is women's work uh, and men have less to do with it. Um, but I think that in virtually every home, there's more discussion uh, about these things. And why should that be? And why should, because there's so many women working outside the home for money, in addition to the, to the men, uh, why should women have more work when they come home at the end of the day? That's not to say that they don't. That's not to say that that's not still widespread. But there's discussion and debate and argument about that. Um, 
and there's a lot of people who don't think that's the right way to live. There, there has been instances reported where companies will have a paternal leave, a policy, mm. you know, that either parent, if you're a parent, either sex, you can take leave if you have a child. But yeah. when men consistently don't take the leave, or not as many men, women are more likely to take the leave because other men in the shop are going to look down on a man who takes paternity leave. My Do you know uni- anything about that? <laughs> you know anything about those studies? I, just anecdotally. I haven't, I haven't actually read the studies, but I, anecdotally at my university, there's paternity leave. Um, but I can think of two colleagues right off the bat who have, um, you know, applied for paternity leave and one had an administrator uh, try to talk him out of it, uh, saying it would be bad for his career. Uh, <laughs> that's what they've been telling. That's they've been telling women that for decades. <laughs> absolutely, you know. But but it's like. But I don't think they're doing it to the same extent with women, uh, at least at Brown. Um, yeah, and I and think this is all of- off the record. This is all just as a friend. Yes. I'm telling you, you know, right. this is nothing official. Blah blah blah. But I think that men um, are badgered into not doing it, even if their inclination is to do it. And and basically, though, it has to do with the fact that the, we're living in an economic system that separates work life from family life, mm. and those two do not meet, cannot meet. That's it's true. considered inefficient for business, of course, to yeah. consider family responsibilities or family issues in trying to create profit and be efficient. Right. And and. Unless we that wall gets broken down somehow, and I think maybe some of this uh, people people who are uh, working at home through the internet or the web, uh, some people who are doing that are breaking down some of that wall between work and family. Yes, right. yeah. I mean, I think the fact that there's so poor childcare in the United States compared to a lot of the rest of the world um, is an indictment. Um, but I think it's also a reflection of, of inequality that's gender-based uh, in the United States. Um, and it's also class-based. I mean, if you have a lot of money, you can hire somebody. Uh, you can hire a nanny to take care of the kids. And people, you know, the very wealthy uh, routinely do that. Um, so I think that it's, it's our attitudes, exactly as you say, you know, not mixing family and, um, and work. And, and trying to make dealing with family something that has nothing to do with, with what's going on. Yeah, and, you know, for millennia, work and, and, and family were all sort of kind of together. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, your children were with you. You were working with your children. They're by, by your side, and it was just kind of more fluid. Now it's very regimented, you know, the 8 to 5, uh, chain to the desk sort of thing. Yeah, um, it's, hopefully, it's, te- hopefully, technology will will free people, some people up from that routine. Well, I think, I mean, if you call birth control technology, I think it has to some extent. I think that the division of labor that had existed for millennia, where women had more um, responsibility for children, um, was linked to biology. It wasn't biology wasn't irrelevant there. Um, men may uh, be able to lactate in a hundred years, 
but so far they haven't been able to. Um, and so far they're not bearing children. Maybe they will someday. Um, but so far that's not happening. So that those things are real. Um, and I think that the advent of modern forms of widely available, fairly reliable birth control has had an impact in terms of decoupling sex from procreation and all sorts of things. And it's allowed families and it's allowed people uh, to develop in new directions. It's not automatic, though. Um, and I think that's why you have so much debate. I mean, the, the Vatican came out last summer with a major statement on gender theory. Um, and it was a sharp critique of anyone who doesn't believe in the gender binary, um, which the Vatican said was both God's will, but it was also a medical and scientific fact. Um, but I, was, I also took this as uh, a sign that the Vatican felt compelled to respond to widespread ideas that are out there uh, that are breaking with the gender binary, um, that are not looking at uh, uh, the man-woman uh, world as, uh, as a, a, a reasonable way to divide uh, things up anymore. So I want to ask you about how women are responding to the pre present moment when you have, you know, the terms like toxic masculinity, you know, around and you have the Me Too movement and this attempt to try to hold men different uh, men accountable how are men uh are men the average yeah the average man is not toxic <laughs> most men are you know there's 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 a group usually the powerful men the men in power are the ones who have right, who are right. powerful over other men are the problem right. uh the average guy is just you know usually not a problem so let me ask you how do how do you think men are 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 they feeling uh, cowed or they're mm. feeling like they have to sh sh show that they're not toxic, you know, right, right, that, right. are men feeling like they're not really being seen as individuals that they're being cast into some category of toxic masculinity and, and they have to prove that they're not. Uh, I, yeah, no, these are great questions. I mean, Meryl Streep got into trouble last year. Also there was, I don't remember the, the original um, thing, but she was reacting to the term toxic masculinity and she was saying something similar. And then she was roundly attacked uh, for saying that not all men are toxic. Um, right. That's uh... and it was a way of downplaying tox toxic masculinity. Um, but I think she was getting at a different point, which is uh, that it's not inherent in men. Right. Um, and I think, you know, you could say men are capable of being toxic. Um, and I think paying attention to what people are trying to flag with that term is important. But I would take the uh, example of Donald Trump, um, if we're not tired of talking about Donald Trump. Uh, the fact is that, uh, one, when people say, you know, this country will never elect a woman, well, actually, this country did. Um, more people voted for Hillary Clinton than, than Donald Trump um, by several million. At the same time, it was not just men who voted for Donald Trump. And I would no, argue right. that it was th that the tens of millions uh, of women who voted for Trump didn't necessarily do it despite what he'd said about women. 
and what he claimed to have done and what he wanted to do uh, in terms of sexual assault, but because they have a certain acceptance, a certain acquiescence, a certain resignation to the idea, like it or not, that's just the way guys are, and more guys would do it and talk like that and act like that if they thought they could get away with it, because boys will be boys. And that is, as I say, I think it's it's a really dangerous kind of outlook. But it's not just men who, you know, think men are this way and, and women are that way. I think there's a lot of women who think that too. But that raises all sorts of issues of debate and not just sort of, you know, in the polls, but in families. I mean, I don't remember ever seeing you know, so much discussion about what are you going to do at Thanksgiving this year when you get together with your family, uh, you know, and, and try to stay away from politics. Now, I'm not saying everything revolves around gender in, in, in terms of current political situation, but that's an aspect of it. How can you put up with this kind of thing? How can you support somebody who openly claims uh, to sexually assault women? Um, I think that is where the debate is. And so it's not just a question of we're all individuals. I think there are different sides to this, but I also think different people feel more strongly at certain times. And certain people, I think there's a lot of uh, men have gotten away with a lot of stuff. Um, okay, so. Sorry. So, no, it's okay. Um, so let me ask you, uh, what are some what the listener out there who's hearing this and who's sympathetic to your, your what you're saying, we're, we're, you know, we're facing just a, a, a huge tidal wave of, of culture and what you call gender confusion. Can you talk about what you mean by that? What do you mean by gender confusion? Uh, clarify that, that idea. Well, I think we're not, not we in general, but I think there are a lot of people today who are not completely sure what it means to be a man. And that's both a question of, are there only two categories, male, female, but it's also a question of, you know, what is toxic masculinity? And is that something inherent in men? Um, is, uh, are men's hormones or their chromosomes, the Y chromosome, does this induce them to do things? And men can think that about other men, but they can also think that about themselves. In other words, if they get angry, um, do they wonder, is this, I'm getting angry because I'm a man, because I must have high testosterone or something like that. And I think that the confusion is the extent to which we attribute behavior and, and all that uh, to something inherent, uh, the inborn uh, in us. And that in times of tremendous historical um, upheaval, and I think this is a moment of upheaval um, in terms of really questioning uh, about that, there's a lot of confusion. Um, and as I say, I think it's, you know, you have the Me Too movement. You have, uh, on, not just on campuses anymore, but in hiring practices all over the country, uh, people are, are expressing what they're preferred pronoun is. Um, this came out of nowhere in the last few years. Um, you have uh, the whole trans politics, uh, which has become a central part of a lot of discussions today. This is in turn um, 
responded to by things like the Vatican document last summer that went out to a billion plus Catholics all over the world. And so you have tremendous debates about this. You have a president who openly brags about sexual assault on women and then people who are just, they can't believe that that's the case. And they have, they're forced to explain that. So again, I think it's confusion. I think it's uh, debate and I think it's renegotiation. And it's not clear. Uh, the Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood was published in 1985. And I don't know whether you read it then or what you think of it, but I did read it when it came out. And I remember thinking it was pretty science fiction-y. It just seemed pretty remote, you know, scary, but not sort of of this world that I knew. It doesn't seem nearly as much science fiction anymore. I think there are actually people who believe that that's the way things should be or lean in that direction. And so it's a, it's a time of, I think, a lot of opportunity to really change our attitudes and behavior and all that. But it's also some peril because if we don't stand up to people who are openly championing uh, sexual assaults on women, uh, we are in effect supporting that. Okay. So let me ask you um, for the listener, uh, what can we do? Is there, what are some things we can do on a daily basis, just as going about our lives to, to, to try to break some of these stereotypes of about masculinity and about men? Uh, <laughs> how, do, how do we, how do we as yeah. individuals just running around in this world uh, help with this? Well, I think talking about these things explicitly makes a difference but I guess one of the things I would emphasize, and it's not the full solution, um, there's political movements that are needed, there are uh, political changes that are needed and all of that, but I would pay more attention to the language we use. Uh, to what, ex- I mean, you know, have we ever used the term boys will be boys when we hear somebody else use it? Um, it's a half joke. You don't want to get too heavy with people, but it's only a half joke. People have some belief that there's some truth, that boys behave a certain way because they are boys. And I think that that's a slippery slope. Uh, It gets us into trouble. When somebody, when we read in the paper, you know, I have a list of of references in, in the popular press, newspapers, magazines, television, all that, uh, when people use the term testosterone in a casual offhand way, as if as if this is really going to explain something. So when the next time we hear a friend or we read somewhere the word testosterone, I think we should step back and say, well, wait a minute, what are they saying here? And is it okay to say that? Do we use the term estrogen to explain the world around us to that ex- to any extent? Um, fortunately, we don't. Uh, but... Why do we do it with, uh, with testosterone? To a lesser extent, we do it with the Y chromosome. We talk about evolution. We talk about comparisons with, you know, this is the way the, the alpha male behaves. Uh, there's a new World Bank study. It's not that new anymore, but it's a few years old. A World Bank study on men. And right toward the beginning, it invokes uh, alpha males among other primates. Uh, alpha and beta males. Because other primates have 
a pecking order that, you, that has been labeled alpha and beta among the males, this is a useful model that should be imposed on humans. Um, it's off on its misunderstanding of how it's used among primate studies, but it's also, it's a shorthand for alpha males are the real manly men. They're the ones who get things done. They're the ones, you know, who, who have the drive and ambition and they are considered the most masculine. So when we read a World Bank study that then is going to go out and influence God knows how many people all over the world, and they talk about alpha males in a certain way being the most manly, do we question that language and the harm that it can do in terms of, 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 of uh, blinders uh, on our thinking about something uh, having to do with men and masculinity? So I would say one thing among many that, that we need to do is pay more attention to the language we use to describe men and masculinities and maleness and all the rest of it. Well, Matthew, uh, you have been very generous with your time. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, so thank you, Matthew Goatman, and thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books and Gender Studies. This is your host, Lillian Barger. <laughs>